Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello and welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we are still talking about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Season six. We're still talking. Still talking. Still talking. <laughs> so a few months ago, um, I'm watching Dr. Bill Roach's channel. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who don't subscribe to Dr. Bill Roach's channel, go check it out. He's doing some good work there. And we're going to be talking to him today. Uh, he's um, a friend of the ministry, and we've had some private conversations behind the scenes, but this is the first time we've had him on the show. And um, he he uploads a lot of content related to social justice, critical social theories, current events, kind of similar, some similar mm-hmm. themes that we're on. But he made a kind of a more personal video chronicling he and his wife's journey through the adoption process recently and how it unfortunately for them did not have a a happy ending, if you will. And um, they actually ended up having to stop the process with the agency that they were with. I sent the video to you to check out and you're like, hey, we should have him on to share a little bit of his story. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know how many people are aware of something called critical adoption studies or critical adoption theory, but there's a critical theory for everything. Yeah, okay, we keep like, saying this. There, there is, and critical, much like critical race theory or you know, critical queer theory, it does create this binary and it looks at those who have power or those who would be considered oppressors or um, the marginalized and those who might not have voice or who could, you know, be oppressed or who are oppressed. And critical adoption theory can break those two things down, looking either at child and adult or, you know, black and white or, you know, majority versus minority. And so, there are a lot of conversations happening right now in the world of adoption and foster and care foster care yeah um but so much of what i heard in his story as i was listening just it just connected with that narrative yeah and i think if we think about what critical adoption theory is just in a nutshell it's kind of seeing the issue of adoption and foster care through the lens of the critical social theories, the oppressed oppressor type of a thing. So in this scenario, the oppressed would be the child, particularly the minority child, and the oppressor would be the the parents. In particular, often it's white parents. Yes. And so, I mean, that's one part of the conversation. Another part of the conversation um, came about, I would say, even before the the. Um, existence of critical race theory, which is just the idea that Black kids should not be placed in white families or Black children. The the amount of Black children that are placed in white families should be, you know, restricted, held back so that Black children can receive the cultural training and upbringing that can be passed along through back black families. So now you look forward to this. You also did a fair amount of study on this issue as part of writing your chapter in our forthcoming book, Walking in Unity. You did a whole chapter on 
multi-ethnic families and adoption was a, a, a um, key component. Yeah. Key component. So you had done quite a, a lot of research. So I think I'm going to be asking you some questions today as well. Um, there'll be kind of a conversation. Girl, asking me no questions. <laughs> for both of you. This is Dr. Bill Roach's time. <laughs> I'm just here. But uh, I think it's going to be a good conversation. And I know we have many uh, families, adoptive family, foster care families who follow the ministry. We do have a special group for multi-ethnic families on Facebook. If people want to go check that out, they can join our group. But make sure you answer the questions before clicking on the join group so that you will be able to actually join the group. Okay, with all of that, let's uh, get our friend Dr. Bill Roach on the show. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Glad to have you. For... It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks now. And, you know, this is just really a topic I think all of us have had to dive into in various means and ways. And I think this is just going to be a great conversation. And I hope it benefits so many of your listeners. I think it will. I think, um, you know, like Krista just said, we have quite a few listeners, followers who have, you know, gone down the path of adoption, specifically inter-ethnic adoption. And then we also have a number of listeners who are curious as to, you know, how many different ways can critical theory make its way into society? And so this is kind of that intersection, the intersection of critical theory and adoption. And what does it look like? What does this unique lane look like? But for those of us who are, or for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with you in particular, can you tell us just like the two minute version of who you are? What do you do? How did you get into what you do? Okay. So like they said, my name is Bill Roach and I'm originally from Iowa and I grew up in a really small town in Iowa and I grew up and I was raised in really an area that a lot of people thought was saturated with the gospel, but I didn't even know what Christianity was until I was, you know, I had this vague idea. I was interacting with the church, but I didn't know what really Christianity was or what the Bible was until I was into my early teenage years. Now, some people had presented it to me, but I was part of this generation of people who you couldn't assume any knowledge of the gospel with. It's that sort of beginnings of the post-Christian culture. And I had a radical conversion going into high school. And from there, I was discipled by my local church, since the call to ministry, started preaching at the age of 16 in churches all throughout the Midwest, and went to Bible college, and it was there in Bible college that I started to seek out different ministry opportunities, and I fell in love with the task of Christian apologetics. And where the intersection of that came together is I actually was working at a church in Chicago, Illinois, and at that church, I was working in a community called Cabrini Green. And for anybody who's unfamiliar with Cabrini Green, it was one of the most notorious gang projects really in the history of the United States of America. Not only did I work there, not only did I serve there, I lived there. And it was at that point in time, I started to realize not everywhere was like where I grew up. Obviously, we don't deny that there are different cultures and different ways of going about things. Not only was it the big city, but it was Cabrini Green. But I was dealt with this issue of apologetics is something that I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I had to find answers in order to answer the people's questions, not only there, but also in all the different speaking venues that I found myself in. So with that, I came upon this name of a figure named Norman Geisler. And I was like, oh, who is this guy? 
Oh, he has a school in Charlotte, North Carolina. So eventually I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, went to Southern Evangelical Seminary, which has some of the finest theological and apologetic training in the world. And I became Dr. Geisler's personal assistant. And I kind of like to say that I was one of the few people that not only worked with Dr. Geisler, but I had a personal office in his house for a long period of time. And I was really discipled and mentored in the task of Christian apologetics by Dr. Geisler and traveled the country with him, wrote books and articles with him. And what I've started to realize through that is that I needed to go on for PhD studies. And I went on and did a PhD in philosophy and really focused on philosophy of hermeneutics. And, you know, hermeneutics, a lot of people think is just the study of, you know, how do we interpret the Bible? But there's also a lot more that has gone into the contemporary idea of hermeneutics, dealing with backgrounds and cultural differences and these things like what is existentialism versus what is Reformation hermeneutics and all of these different things. And why that's important is because it thoroughly equipped me to deal with the apologetic situation related to critical theory. And I know we'll discuss a little bit more about that, but what I noticed during my time is that there was a shift that occurred in the apologetic conversation. You know, last century in the 20th century, people said the apologetic issue was the hard sciences. And I've been arguing that the issue of the 21st century is going to be that of the social sciences. And that's why I think this conversation is so important is because we realize that the intersection of the social sciences affect schools, it affects politics, it affects families, it affects adoption. And we not only studied it as a theory, but my wife and I had to walk through this as individuals uh, dealing with how not just society, but Christians within society are really just bending their need to these different movements and ideologies. You mentioned um, you, your wife and you started to you know, recognize how these these ideas are coming into society. What specifically was it for you guys that got you started on the journey of critical adoption studies and even talking about this? So really the, the issues that got me related to critical adoption studies, it comes in two, two ways. One, when I worked in Cabrini-Green, I worked with a family that planted a church in Cabrini-Green, which just to know anything about Cabrini-Green, it is the most poverty-stricken area of Chicago, at least was at that time. Now it's largely bulldozed and gentrified, surrounded by some of the most rich real estate in the United States of America. And there was a white family that had adopted three African-American children. Now they weren't from Cabrini, but they had worked there. So I saw the dynamic and I saw the realities of the different things that were related to it. So in many respects, it wasn't just something that was odd. It was something that I readily embraced. And the reason that that becomes important is, is that given this discussion, that's not only something I'm unable to understand, but somehow if you long for that, there's a power dynamic there or there's a savior complex that tries to be you know, pushed upon you and all of these different buzzwords that they use. Step one experience, dealt with it, lived with this crew, understand the reality of it. The second thing where I started to hear about the issue of critical adoption studies in a vague sense is that I was, like you were saying, there's a, a critical theory for everything. You know, the the genus of it, the broad aspect of, of critical theory is really just a form of of Marxism that has various different species. So it can be critical race theory, critical immigration theory, critical adoption studies, critical queer studies, and all the rest. But where I first came into 
you know, intersection on this was a professor at one of the Southern Baptist institutions who had, he's a white guy who had adopted African-American children. And he made this comment that actually went viral. If you live in the middle of a place that is just overwhelmingly white, there's hardly any people of color where you live at all in your town. This sounds like a harsh thing to say, but you probably should not adopt Hmm. a non-white kid. And uh, this goes back to that that form that everyone's going to have to fill out at some point if you want to adopt. And we we've talked with other couples about this, given our experience. And you know, if you're going to move to the middle of some place where it's all white folks, and you're filling out this adoption uh, checklist, and it says, you know, what races are you open to? I think white folks struggle with guilt. They feel guilty, you know, if they say, well, I'm only going to check the box that says I'm open to adopting a white child. But it would be much better for your kids if you are gonna only be able to because of where you live because of who your friends are and because of what you can and can't change in your life if you're going to raise kids like white kids that's not bad that's not wrong that's not evil at all but you should adopt white kids and you know this was a broader conversation that was taking place not only within society but it was taking place within the southern baptist convention And, you know, there were some people that were saying things like, you know, critical race theory is nothing more than an analytical tool. But the way that it was being used was actually being a tool of destruction, a destruction not only in the academy, within the seminaries, but as it was working its way into the daily lives of individuals. Specifically, this guy gave his talk on interracial adoption at one of these big conferences. And I knew right then and there, this is something that I need to look into And it's something that I need to study. So I really came into it by studying just critical theory as such. But when we started to go through the adoption process, it was just something that, you know, you go through the trainings and if you have the buzzwords that you're hearing and you understand the ideology behind it, you're reading this and you go, you think you're just doing like this culturally responsive understanding of the, you know, the different races. And I'm like, this is not just that. This is pure critical race theory. So that's how we started to get into it in that sense. That's my first exposures to it. And then I kind of immersed myself in a lot of the literature. So as you're, I want to get into at that point, into a little bit more of your adoption journey yourself, like maybe whatever you feel comfortable in sharing of what led to you and your wife going down the path of looking into adoption and then, um, you know, what kind of agency you went through? Was it a government, a secular Christian? And, you know, kind of what some of those steps were. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, when they start to go down the adoption, it's usually one of these things where, you know, they want to grow their family in the sense that they already have children and they're trying to, you know, adopt to maybe grow their family or because they see a need and they're adopting children in this. And then the other side is you have people who have issues where maybe they're unable to have children. So adoption is the next logical step for them. That's the category that we were in is that for a number of years, you know, we've wanted to have children and we've been unable to. And we looked at just different avenues on how we would like to go about this. And we looked initially at foster to adopt. And that was just not something that we ended up wanting to pursue, just mainly because, you know, you get these kids into your home, you may foster them for six months, a year, and then sometimes they were just gone. And we knew that that would be a difficulty emotionally to deal with. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying for us, we knew that that would be a difficult thing. So we looked into not just foster to adopt, but, you know, full adoption. And one of the things that I think people got to realize is that 
you know, Foster to adopt is going to have a lot of the same trainings that we're going to run into here. We saw a lot of that, but the costs tend to be almost significantly lower, if not free. Whereas adoption is something where it costs significantly more. And that was another factor. So we just kind of queued it up and said, okay, not only do we have to count the financial costs, but we realize it's probably the better option given our circumstances. So then you start looking into the state and then you start looking into different Christian adoption agencies and you start to see where can I adopt given my particular state, my particular region? How is my home study going to function with out-of-state adoption versus in-state adoption? So we decided upon an organization that was recommended to us and we'd seen other people adopt through in North Carolina that was a Christian adoption agency. And we wanted to do that because we thought, we hoped, we prayed that it would be better than the state alternatives. Because again, you know what you're going to get from the state. You know the trainings you're going to get from the state. You know how their home studies are going to function. You know how the particulars are going to be. But what we found is, is that this particular organization, which is under the banner of the Southern Baptist Convention, specifically funded by the North Carolina Baptist Convention, ended up being no different than the state. And we partnered with them because they were cheaper in one sense. And, you know, we don't say cheaper in the sense of, you know, like we're just trying to be cheap, but, you know, adoption, people don't realize it can cost 30, 60, sometimes $80,000, depending on where your context is. So, you know, they were at the time running in that closer to 30 and a lot of the other organizations were 50 to 60. So that was a, a practical thing. But, you know, when we got in there, you check the website, you don't see any of this. It just looks like we're here to care for you know, mothers who are struggling, whatever their situation may be, we're placing children into people's homes. And, you know, you go through some of the trainings and some of them are just generic trainings that you have to go through. Like, what's the legal process going to be like? What's the fundraising process initially going to be like? And then you have all the different information that you have to go through, you know, your medical background checks. But where we started to notice it was in the home studies. And then in the in-person trainings and the binders that we were given. Now, when you say you started time, to notice it, are you talking specifically about things that we started noticing kind of critical theory jargon? Is that what you're exactly. talking about? Exactly. You know, okay. it's just some of these things like you don't see it in the fundraising portion of it because that's just a pretty generic aspect of, you know, here's how you're going to get from this dollar amount to that dollar amount. But I noticed it during the home studies first and foremost, where I remember sitting in our living room distinctly and- you hear the buzzwords and you're going to hear, we know what the buzzwords are, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you're going to hear aspects of, you know, we want to have unity, but there's problems that are keeping us from unity. And then on the other side of it, there's another form of unity, sort of this critical immunity or um, unity that they're going to give. And they started asking things like, how many African-Americans attend your church? How many minorities attend your church? How many minorities would you say live in your cul-de-sac here? And I knew why they were trying to ask us these kinds of questions. And I, and I think what it is, is it came back to my apologetics training. It came to the original reading and some of the people that I speak at conferences with. This is just something that I was readily involved in. And initially we were going through and I remember this phrase that said something, if you want to adopt transracially, you're going to have to do extra trainings. So I sort of in a Socratic method was like, well, what does that mean? And they just laid it out. You're going to have to go through culturally diverse ethnic trainings in order to proceed with this. 
And I thought that's interesting. And at the time, I didn't really say anything. I'm just soaking it in, listening to what they're saying. And all the time, I'm really thinking to myself, um, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I see. I know what kind of manipulations that they're wanting and they're not going to work on me. And I initially also thought, okay, do we want to just go through this process and see what it's going to be like? Well, we have to continue it going forward. But this particular agency wanted us to stay with them until the child was 18 years old. So I knew this was not only just an education now, this was going to be something that was going to be carried forward for possibly, you know, just under two decades. So that's the first step on it. And I don't know if you have any other questions about that before I jump to the second step, which was significantly more. Like I can give you more details about the home study and what that looked like, because there was more on that. But the in-person trainings are where we saw it absolutely the most. I think it's interesting that the intersection of the critical theory and the adoption for you seem to um, meet at the home study part and not before. And so, yeah, so the yeah. narrative for us would have been something like this. You know, you initially have this meeting and then they see if you're going to be a real prospective candidate for it. See, what you'll do is you go through and you fill out all this background stuff about yourself. And some of it is, you know, very generic background. You know, is this guy a felon? Is he not a felon? Does he have a criminal background in this regard? All of that. And I understand they have to do their due diligence in that regard. But as you're going through, you list what were known as your preferences. And by preferences, they're usually giving racial demographics, but also issues related to disability demographics. And, you know, we put down, we were open to all races. And then within reason, we were open to different sort of disability issues. Now, my wife is a speech therapist, so she deals with a whole wide range of those type of issues related to speech disabilities, but she also works with other people that are dealing with occupational therapy and all the rest. So she's very much aware of exactly what's going on with that, both on the clinical side of it and in in those particular fields right now, they're also having to do all of the diversity trainings as it relates to those also just for clinical licensure. Again, critical theory is not something that just touches one thing. It touches everything in this society today. And so we put we were open to all races and a wide variety of different disabilities. Let me give you an example of this. So some of them can be things like drug exposure. It can also be things related to certain maybe birth defects that a child might have or if they're going to have a speech issue because of drug issues. Like we recognize like kids don't always come you know, to us in a perfect package. But it was interesting because the critical theory of adoption not only was about race, but it became like these you have to adopt these extreme disability types of situations where, you know, the kid may need a heart transplant. And if you've already agreed to it, you're going to have to do it. And at both of those levels, and maybe this is something to do more research on, is how does the intersection of critical theory apply to disability issues? Because technically speaking, that would be another area of possible oppression within society and all the rest. Now, if I would have done the classes first, I never would have finished the home study. Just because when we got to the classes, that's where it came out in full. And people have asked me numerous times, well, didn't you know? Weren't you aware of this? And initially, the recorded courses that we did at home, there was really nothing in that. There was nothing leading up to it. I started to see it in the home study, but it came out in 
full force in the in-person all-day trainings with the organization. And I mean, I can read some of the article titles that they gave us here. I can tell you some of the yeah, stories. Yeah, please do. Yeah, tell us some examples. Yeah. So, so we get in there. I remember we started out and the order of events is they were going to have something like this. The title, give or take, was, you know, how to be an adoptive parent. And you think, okay, I get why they're going to do this. Like, obviously, if you're going to adopt a child, there's just going to be things that are different. And they brought in this pastor and his wife. He was a PCA pastor from the, the Charlotte area. And I remember he was sitting in this chair and he leaned over at us. He, he was kind of almost like a coach looking at us. And I thought, okay, what is he going to say here? You know, it's this personality. And he goes, what I want all of you to know is, is that all of you struggle with unconscious racial bias. And I was like, oh my goodness, well, I know what, what this is going to turn into. Were there any the black next... people in the room? No, that I can think of other than the staff with the organization there. Yeah, but I mean, none of the, none of the potentially adoptive no. parents, he wasn't talking to, to those no, people. it was okay. basically the organization, it was just had like 100% white people that were in there, but the staff, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, excluded from that, a few that were there. And the staff that were African-American spoke later in the day and gave all of these talks about racial microaggressions and how you're a racist if you can't, you know, figure out how to do your black daughter's hair and all the rest. So we're sitting there and he's going on and on and on. And we're talking like all of the the books that you would need to reference to it and all of the arguments that they're giving, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, unconscious racial bias, systemic racism. Now, I know what these mean. And it's funny because uh, you know, James Lindsay has this whole thing titled translating wokish because what they say is not actually what the terms always mean. For example, diversity, they're going to initially say means, you know, we want all people represented here and we want to have all the different viewpoints represented. And, and on its face value, people are like, oh, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that. But what they really mean by diversity is training in critical consciousness. And then you get to inclusive or inclusion. And, you know, we want everybody to have a place at the table. We want everybody to feel welcome here. But by inclusion, they really mean we're only going to include those people who are trained in critical consciousness. And we're actually excluding people who are not trained in critical consciousness or don't agree with critical consciousness. And then equity is just social Marxism in that regard. And they're going through. And so let me give you a few of the articles. Like they, they gave us this big book and, you know, all these different articles there that you see. And Tab one, so in the order of events, and they didn't go through really any of this book except these topics. So article one, empowering adopted children of color in the face of racism and discrimination. And they go through and they look at different stories and they're trying to just problematize these issues and they're fixing them with critical theory. And we'll talk about that here in a second. It ends with this whole thing of, Use your privilege to make a change, your white privilege, obviously, to make a change. Then they look at all these things about racial and ethnic makeup of adoptive families in the United States and what it looks like. Another one was titled Adopting a Child of Another Race and that you have to have this self-reflective process that you need to go through social emotional learning training, which is really just the infusion of critical theory through non-rational basis of, oh, your, your feelings on critical theory about how you should react, why you did react on this. 
And people don't like to hear this, but it's really a way of programming you to say, this is how you should feel and react. And that's what the proper learning is. Notice it's not learning about your emotions. It's about training you to have the right kind of emotions that you want to have, or they want you to have. They talked about how, if you're going to adopt transracially, how it's wrong almost always and everywhere in all place to think that you can do it as a colorblind, like I don't see race. You have to see these, these color dynamics. They get into all the issues of microaggressions, you know, the, the trauma cycles, the standpoint theory. I mean, just on and on and on and on. And that's what all these articles were. And that's what the whole morning session was. So, you know, it's one of those things where as a person who studied this, I knew what we were getting involved in right there. And I'm trying to be quiet. And, you know, you can have like that hypothetical, um, where you see, you know, say the husband and wife and they're sitting at the kitchen table over Thanksgiving and you got like crazy uncle Fred that tries to say something and she like kicks him in the shin or something. And my wife's looking at me just like, be calm. Cause I don't want to create a scene, but I'm also like, I know what's going on here. And it really was discouraging for us. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to, to just cause a fight. I'm not here to just cause a problem. But like I said, the apologetic situation of our day is dealing with these social science issues, critical theory, and all the rest. And, you know, that was the morning study at this point. And I remember how it ended. You know, I can give you examples. We can talk about more of what the actual people said. And there's this whole group of individuals, the vast majority of them are in their 20s and 30s. I remember looking over and they were like, does anybody have any questions? And there was this guy, we'll say he's late 20s. And he looks over and he had this just blown away look on his face. And I remember he goes, wow, I've, I've never thought about it that way. And I initially thought, hey, I'm sure you haven't, because it was just one of those issues where it's like, no, reality doesn't function according to critical theory. You had to be trained to think according to the premises of critical theory. And what they do is this, is that. The the broader issue on this is not just this adoption agency, because to understand it, you got to understand the broader cultural issue and the broader history of this. And that's why there's a, a woman who wrote an excellent book titled Mao's America, and her name is Chi Van Fleet. She's actually a Chinese woman. Her name is spelled K-I uh, Van Fleet. And she was raised under Mao's whole agenda and the whole social programming that took place with this. And what we're finding is, is that this is an element of what could really just be called like the malification of the West. And by that, she means it's the way that sort of this social communist Marxism is taking place. And you find this three-part process that it does is you have a call for unity, and then you have a problem, and then there's another call for unity. So within that context, it could be, you know, we need to have unity as the Chinese people, but we have this problem. You know, you have the 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 people versus sort of the Chinese government and what they want to have. And the way that you've got to do and deal with this is, is you got to get the people to recognize their proper place. So how do they recognize their proper place? Well, it's communism in that regard. So as it relates to critical theory, you know, we want to have unity, but we have these problems and they can be real problems. Like we, we don't deny that you know, there can be issues of police brutality. There can be real racists that are out there. There can be real issues that cause real problems. 
So they have their call for unity. They have real problems that people, but then the question is, how do they solve the problem? And it's always with critical theory. So as these people tried to discuss this, they would say, you know, we need to be unified as, you know, could say we can be unified as Christians, or we need to be unified as Americans, or we need to be unified as adoptive parents, whatever they're going to use for the initial thing. And, but then they go through and they come up with problems. And this is what's interesting was the problems that they picked were something like this. Um, the mom talks about how, oh, we're a pastor's family. And, you know, we initially adopted in Western North Carolina and, you know, that's a very racist area. So we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had this diverse church and somebody came into the church and they were in the foyer and they were playing with all the kids, you know, here's the daughter and here's the son and here's this. Well, they picked her African-American boy that they had adopted and they put him on his shoulders, like literally like, you know, legs right through here on the shoulders and just played around. She said, you are tokenizing my child and you must put him down immediately. But in the context of it, it was like, you know how you play sometimes with little kids, you can like rough house around with them a little bit. And then she gave all this, you had to be your, your child's greatest advocate. You have to be your child's greatest defender. And in one sense, I get like, yeah, if something's happening, you do need to be your child's greatest advocate, but there was nothing wrong that was there. And the only reason that she saw that as a, a tokenism issue is that she'd just been fully steeped in critical theory and she had to problematize that because, again, the issue is not, is this racist, but how is this racist? So she's just reading all of her racism into it or the critical race theory interpretation. So the unity, that was her problem that she had that was her example. And her solution to it was, was reading things by like Ibram Kendi and you have to embrace anti-racism work, which really anti-racism work is the other side of the coin. And I, I want to flesh this out because again, it sounds like a good word, right? You, you want to be anti-racist, but within this whole issue, you have the theory and the praxis. And I'm saying this like P-R-A-X, like praxis in this regard. And that's the application. And when you look at it from figures like Paulo Freire, you had not only the theory, but the, the application of it. And anti-racism is, in no other words, it's the praxis of critical theory. It's the, the actual transformation. And, you know, Ibram wants a, a constitutional amendment and to, to you know, insinuate these things into the United States Constitution, or it could be the revolts on the street. It could be all the different things that they want it to be. It, you know, there's a whole host of them that came about. But again, it just followed the exact claims of critical theory, the same issues of like the malification concepts of, you know, problem, I mean, unity, problem, unity, the unity always is on the basis of critical theory. And that's what the whole training was about. That's what the whole thing. So what was really just interesting, I think this is actually probably one of the things that bothered my wife the most is that you go to a Christian adoption agency and you would expect things like, Okay, we're going to talk about in your only meetings that you have with us, things about like, you know, the beauty of the fact that we are adopted children of God. And one of the reasons that we adopt is because God in Christ Jesus adopted us. Or the idea that the fact that God calls us to look after widows and orphans, or the biblical theology of why we see people made in the image of God and the value that they have, you would think that there would be some kind of discussion about that. There was none. You think that there would be a time where a Christian adoption agency, when you've got 
probably 25, 30 people in a room who would want to pray for the people about what they're going to experience. And, you know, there there is a real aspect of difficulty and even sometimes trauma that people face. I mean, a kid is being removed from its birth mother and the birth mother no longer has her child there. You would think you would want to pray for a situation like that, but there was none of that. You would think that it would be things like, how can your church support you? And what does it look like? And there was a little bit of that, but it was always issues about understanding the church really only needs to help you raise your child insofar as it relates to racial differences and racial disparities. Don't mind the fact that, you know, you want to see the child come to know Christ and come to faith in Christ, or that the real goal is to train them in godliness and holiness and righteousness and all the rest. My point is, is that all the things that you would hope a Christian adoption agency would bring to the table, none of those were brought to the table. And all the things you would not want to have a Christian adoption agency bring to the table, namely pure card-carrying critical theory, is all that was talked about during the morning and afternoon sessions and throughout the whole training after that, the articles you had to read afterwards and so on and so forth. Well, you know what? This is a good place to take a break to hear from our partners at Impact 360. Here we go. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples, and they'd always say that verse, and I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like at all. And then when I got here, they taught me, like, everything I was curious to know about, like, progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere, and that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and really diving into them, and not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual thing, it's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life, and Propel is really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. And once again, we want to draw your attention to the program of Propel. In particular, it's their summer camp. It's a one-week experience for high school students. Go check it out now on the Impact 360 website. It sounds like there was an operating assumption all along that you and your wife are colonizers and that bringing a minority child, a black or brown child into your family is a form of colonization, oppression, racial trauma. That sounds like kind of encapsulated and that operating assumption then from there they would be interacting with you according to those assumptions. So they've got to work to straighten out your thinking to help minimize the trauma or deal with the trauma that the the child would experience. Exactly. And, okay. you know, would they come out and say that? No, I think they're wise enough not to come out and say those kinds of things. But that's the way that this sort of woke doublespeak works is that if you ever come out and just say like, we think you're a white colonizer that has all of these particular traits. People will naturally push back against that. But if you start to come out and frame it in things where you go, 
hmm, man, maybe I do have a problem with that. So like the the afternoon session where there was a woman that spoke at it and she was a, a transracial in the sense that she was both white and black. And she talked about how when she was adopted by her white family, how they expressed all of these issues of microaggressions. And she just laughed. Oh, my life was filled with these microaggressions. And you're like, okay, give me an example of one of them. They weren't able to do her hair the right way. And you go, oh, maybe there is a difference. Here's the thing. I am an individual like, yes, I'm a white man. If you ask me to do my wife's hair, I couldn't figure that out. If you ask me to do anybody's hair, I couldn't figure it out because people usually don't know how to do somebody else's hair. And yes, there are differences, but are those differences just a lack of knowledge or does that lack of knowledge mean you don't have some privileged standpoint that's going to give, or is it because of your privileged standpoint, you're not able to see what you don't know. And you look at it and you go, just because you can't do your six month or year old daughter, African-American daughter's hair, does that make you a racist? And the reality is, again, according to critical theory, it's not, is this racist, but how is this racist? And they problematized everything and they wanted to have this new consciousness that was brought about. But what's really funny is that when you study even like the idea of a microaggression and you're like, well, what, what is this microaggression? It's not conscious usually, and it's usually some expression of racism and it's some way that you are expressing maybe a power dynamic that's not working out in your favor. But then you press and you're like, well, where did this even come from? And what's interesting is, is that James Lindsay talked about this in one of his podcasts that it actually, the whole concept of a microaggression came down to where you had an individual who was on a plane. He happened to be overweight and he was asked to move to a different seat on the plane. Why? Because like, you got to like balance weight on planes or you're flying at that high altitude. And if it's leaning or there's different balances, say the, uh, the luggage was put in a different way. And that's where the concept of microaggressions in the sense of one of the main, and obviously somebody might say it was something else, but these are the kinds of things you're like, wait a minute, that's not a microaggression. Like that's just sometimes life in this sense. And what they do is they try to find situations where there may be, you know, a real cultural difference or just a lack of knowledge. I mean, how many men don't know how to change a diaper when the kid comes into their home, whether it's their child or an adopted child. Is that a microaggression? Like we can go on and on and on and reduce these onto absurdities of just, you have a lack of knowledge in a particular area. Does that therefore make it a microaggression? And you go, the point is, is that if everything's a microaggression, well then fundamentally it's like, you're, you're not proving anything. Like it's sort of like if everything's a microaggression, then nothing's a microaggression in that regard. So then one of the things that she talked about, which was really interesting is, is that she was talking about what it was like to be adopted into a white family and how later in her life, she was reunited with her birth mother. And probably one of the saddest things to me is, is that she talked about, you know, this was the height of 2020 when she was making these reconnections, she was in college and all the rest, how she said, I identify with my blackness more than my whiteness because she was mixed race at this point. And she stopped living with her white family to go live with her African-American mom, not just because, oh, I reconnected with her. Maybe that was a factor of it or, oh, because I wanted to meet this woman that gave birth to me. But she based it upon the fact that she identified with her blackness more than her whiteness. What else could give rise to this other than critical adoption studies, critical theory and diversity, equity and inclusion?
that's a, a a very interesting story. Um, I I'm wondering, like in in listening to your story and um, like imagining you in this room with these people and these other you know potentially adoptive parents, you said everybody is white. Did they intentionally separate you out or? You know, was that just the people who showed up? Was there a different kind of class for Black adoptive parents? Asian parents, Hispanic parents? You know, what was interesting is, is that to answer your initial question, I don't know if they intentionally like separated us out because obviously they said, here are the dates for the different trainings. And this was the date that we had to show up. But I do know this, that if we were going to go and have to do, you know, an interracial adoption in this regard, we were going to have to take more classes on this. We were going to have to go through. And th- how do I know this? That's specifically what the woman in her home study told us about. She said, that, well, this is a whole other conversation. You're going to have to do all the rest. So what I did is I basically, I'm left in this position going, what am I going to do? Am I going to go through the trainings and have to do this? Or can I change things and still, because, you know, you want to adopt a child, you you're dealing with your family situation with this. So I changed our preferences and just said, oh, if I have to, to do transracial adoption um, and I got to go through those classes, well, I'm not going to go through those classes. So we we changed it. And that actually made things even worse. Because so you changed that to being like you would only take a white child? Yeah, we did in that sense, because they were forcing it so hard upon us. And basically I was like, so if I translate, like you're calling us racist in this regard, and I know what it is. They're not coming out saying you're racist, but the trainings were in that regard. So we changed our preferences and that's when things got really nasty within the organization. I'm sorry, in in the the transracial conversation of maybe a black parent adopting a white child, did they still have to go through these classes? No, by no means, because they assumed that they already had the knowledge that was going place. It would have been something like this. If you have, say, you're a a white man married to a black woman or you're a black man married to a white woman, you didn't have to go through it because you've already been exposed to this. In fact, I knew there was also another situation where they pressed another family in this regard who had already adopted transracially and they were going to make them go through it again. So you just kind of go, when does this end? And the fact is, is that it doesn't end. The trainings keep going. So then you look at this, the goal is a new society. Like, you know, what's the difference between Russian Soviet Marxism and Maoist Marxism? And then it's an expression of it in America, which is a form of race Marxism. Is They all want a utopian society. And here's the key. This is what a lot of people don't realize. And they want to have people who are trained in that to fill the new society. So they want the Hegel's new man. They want you know, Mao's person that's carrying the red book. And in this, they want the person who's trained in critical theory for the race conscious individual. But it's not just the race conscious individual for the race conscious society. It's the race conscious family to fill the race conscious society. And that's so much of the essence of what critical adoption studies becomes is it's not just looking at, you know, the training of critical theory or the application of it. It's the raising of critical conscious families because if you allow people into these situations that aren't trained in this and buy into this, they serve as counterexamples to the goal that you want to bring about with it. That's why I say you can't just look at it as just this isolated little event. You've got to understand the full narrative of the full conversation 
in order to understand the whole history of what's going on. So I came at it in a different way. You know, some people come at it from adoption studies into the study of critical theory. I'd already studied all that stuff. And then I was seeing this just laid before us. And that's where it hit that was hard within my family, watching it with this. But the other aspect that's really unique is what happened in Mao's America, I mean, sorry, Mao's China, if you didn't buy into his social transformation, what did they do? Struggle sessions where they try to press you into conformity. They try to press your family into conformity. And that's exactly what we did is that when we didn't go along with this and I basically said, okay, preferences are preferences. We're going to change this. I'm not going to spend the next 18 years having to deal with this. Like if it's my adopted child, I'm not going to have to bend my knee to all of these social transformations. Then we get this email. We have to have an emergency meeting about changes of preferences. It was a Maoist struggle session at every sense of the term. The questions they were asking, the way that they were pressuring us, the changes that they were trying to bring about within us, the assumption that we made these changes is not because of not wanting to go through education, but because of, oh, maybe this is a manifestation of racism and all the rest. It was nothing less than a struggle session. And I've even confirmed this with people who like grew up in Mao's China and how they did these types of things. So then I asked, I asked this very pointed question. So are you telling me that we're no longer going to be in the organization based off of this? Oh, no, no, you can still remain. But then their, their response was, well, we're just not going to be able to suit the needs because we just don't get enough children that meet your criteria. When I've gone on their website, I've looked on their Facebook page, They've adopted lots of kids that meet all of the different criteria. So the reality is we faced an old Maoist struggle session. We were removed from the organization. We then petitioned that to the leadership and they readily dismissed us. We then wrote a formal complaint and their response to us was like this one line little, like we see that you've submitted this. So I immediately wrote the board of the organization. And I told them exactly what we went through. And I just laid out all of the details of what we kind of went through here. And they gave us a full-blown response. Not Well, not a full-blown response. They gave us like a two-page response on this, dealing with our situation, saying, one, they're making changes into the organization, that they, did, they weren't aware of all of these things that were taking place within their organization. And they refunded us our money that we'd already paid. And you sign a thing saying, we will not refund your money. And they refunded our money. And I look at it like this. If I go down and say you're running a business and I say like no refunds and I refund your money because of something that's really wrong with a product or something that happened, that's an admission of guilt. And there's no other way of putting it. The board recognized what happened. We didn't want to partner with them again after that. They refunded our money and we're here today. This is the situation that we're in now. And it's funny because we've discussed this with other adoption organizations and laid out the details of this. And not every adoption agency is like this, but this one was, and they've looked at this like, I can't believe you guys had to go through all of that. This is a horrible situation. It's like, yeah, it's a classic struggle session in order to only include those trained in critical theory or racial consciousness or whatever buzzword they're going to use for that particular situation. Oh, I really want to emphasize too that what we're not saying is that, you know, trauma and adoption is not real. Like Bill said earlier, you know, that when a child is taken from its biological parents, when it loses the voice of the mother that it's heard for nine months 
growing in its mother's womb. Like that's, that's a sad situation. And we're grateful for parents who want to come around that child and love them in the middle of that very difficult situation where that biological parent, for whatever reason, didn't feel like they could properly care for the child. We're not now classes on that could be helpful. You know, I I can imagine that that could be a helpful class to take of how to deal with that trauma loss and 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 the bonding around that. Like that to me all seems like real issues in adoption that could be helpful. But when we start talking about all this critical consciousness and cultural consciousness and all of this, that's a different mm-hmm. a different conversation. Exactly. That's why I said they find real problems, but their answers to the problems are yeah. always critical consciousness in that regard. And, and my, my thing is, I don't mind dealing with real problems and offering God's answer to those real problems, but critical theory is not God's answer to any problems, period. So in fairness for anyone who is watching who may be a proponent of keeping Black children in Black households or keeping, you know, Black children or having the conversation of, you know, something related to critical consciousness or the critical theory of adoption, I also want to make sure that people are aware that the conversation in race and adoption is not new. It is it is older than the critical social theories, or um, I'll say it's older than the presence of critical race theory. So we can go back to a time um, when black kids weren't allowed to be adopted into white families, and there were there was the entire kind of miscegenation concept as you know put on adoption, looking at, you know, who miscegenation going back to who can marry, who, who, you know, can blacks and whites marry and what does that look like? But having something like that, that concept being um, put on or appropriated to the family who can adopt, who should have these children or those children. And as time has passed, and I believe it was at the end of maybe the Vietnam war, it's one of the wars where, um, people started to, or maybe it was World War II, where people started to adopt children from overseas. We then see this concept of Black children also being able to go into white families. When we have Black children going into white families, there comes a conversation now from the Black side of the conversation, and we want to make sure that our children receive our culture. And you get the, um, I want to say it's the National Association of Black Social Workers, in in the 70s who even put this this issue forward of you know we don't want black children to enter into white homes and miss all of their culture there's the con- the conversation of you know why are black children being put into white homes and so i while i hear and i understand i do think i'm not like negating anything that bill is saying about critical adoption studies, right. I do want to offer the information that the conversation of race and children and can black, white parents adopt black children, are white parents capable of raising black children? Um, that conversation has been around for a, a much longer time than Kimberly Crenshaw's, you know, critical race theory or this conversation of critical adoption studies. I mean, like, I'm thinking about someone who's an African-American parents. Let's say they adopt out of the foster care system. 
Mexican children mm-hmm. or children of Mexican heritage. I am a skeptic. Maybe somebody can send me some receipts that that African-American couple has to take special classes on how to have cultural consciousness about Mexican culture. So I know someone in that very situation. And when, and I had a conversation with her about this because we were planning the show. And what I was told was that, no, the expectation is that minority to minority, the the minority parent would automatically understand okay. some of these issues, whereas the white parent would not have that cultural competence. And so there would need to be the other training. Bill, I'm not sure if that would be your experience or if you would sign off and co-sign on, on what I'm saying. <laughs> You know, backing up into the broader issue of, you know, there are real sort of cultural differences that occur. And I understand like people want to keep their their heritages alive. And I've seen that. I think that's what was so interesting to me is that, you know, I lived in served in Cabrini Green. I've lived and served with families that have adopted transracially in this regard. And I've seen it done well. But what they were wanting to do was much more than just keep the culture alive. Mm-hmm. They were fundamentally asking for just something else, something more. And, you know, you start to see the publications that are coming out from, you know, groups like Moody Press on this particular thing where they have a whole thing on transracial adoption. And the answers that they give are not just, oh, we're trying to keep cultural differences alive and all the rest. And that's where the rubber started to meet the road is that there's like a fundamental shift that's taken place. And that shift is the training in critical theory and standpoint epistemology and so forth. Yes, yes. And me offering the other information about the historical conversation in no way meant, you know, was said to negate what you're saying or to say, well, you know, they're actually just trying to, you know, keep the culture alive. No, that part of of your experience with critical adoption theory and the idea that, you know, white parents are unfit simply because of their standpoints and culture, their skin color, their socioeconomic status and those things, they would be then unfit to um, to care for a black child is something completely different. Exactly. And I think we're on the same page in that yeah. regard with it. And it's funny because, you know, when we're looking at this situation, like, you know, again, we do apologetics. We recognize the apologetic situation. We realize we live in a postmodern world and critical theory in many respects has a lot of postmodernism that's undergirding it. And one of the big issues of postmodernism is that they hate fixed, stable definitions of words or fixed, stable definitions and narratives and stories. And they like to equivocate, which is using one word in two different senses. And that's what goes on here is, is that they're going to say something like, well, we're just training you to understand your culture and your child's culture. I mean, all the time is that that's the nice way of saying it. The other way of saying it is, is that we don't think you have an understanding of the culture and we have to force this through some kind of re-education. You go, well, how do we know this is what's going on? That's the whole broader issue of how critical theory is working its way into the whole education systems within the United States and the broader West. And again, I... I lean on them. I give credit to them. I cite them is that this is the classic Martin Bailey fallacy that James Lindsay and O'Fallon talk about is that you have the crazy claim and then you have the softer claim. And what they do is they they bounce back and forth between them. So let's just say it's an education thing and you need 
And if you were to walk in and say, you know, I think all white kids need to be chained to the floor in order to understand the ideas of oppression and racism. And so we're going to do this, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week till they figure it out. I think a lot of parents would complain. But if you sell it as, oh, you know, we're using like a re-education concept of this when they're pressed, you know, we're just trying to teach them different cultural people. Go, oh, they're just trying to teach them about different cultures when it can be used in so many different ways. And that's how the fallacy works. It's people think they're saying the same thing, but they're really saying two totally different things. And when things are going well, they say the crazy harder claims. And when things are getting pressed, they revert back to a softer claim. And that's just a dynamic of people who are lying. Like, oh, I didn't really mean to say it that way when it's like, no, you you said it that way. Like, I'm not going to fall for that game. And I think that's a, a broader conversation on how education works, but specifically as it relates to critical adoption studies, you know, unless you, you know, seen the history of how this movement works out, I can see how people can easily fall into it. Be like that kid. Wow. I never saw this. And the truth is, no, you haven't ever saw this. Like this is something that they're having to train you in, in that regard. Did they ever give you any research to support, you know, why you needed these trainings that this kind of trauma really happens or that it is trauma? Like, was there any scientific component no, they just to assumed that? It. They assumed it. Okay. This is just the state of affairs that we're in. You know, they'll, they'll give you these little readings that you go through and you have these little pie charts and these little graphs and things and you look at them. And you go look it up, you know, online and you see like where they're pulling them and you look at the data behind it and you're like, first of all, your pool of people is significantly low to show these, these areas that you're talking about. You know, if you have a case with a thousand people and you show a disparity, it's a lot different than a hundred thousand people. But some of these pools that they are pulling them from, you're like, this is like a hundred people. I've seen only 12 people. 12 families. Yeah, exactly. They did that within the study there where they had this whole thing. And, you know, the the chart where one of them's like really high and the other one's like really low. And you look down at the footnote and you're like, there's like, like you said, there's like 12 people. They did that in the study itself. And I was like, this is 12 people. Like that's, that's by no means uh, a scientific study into some kind of inductive method on what it should look like and the reality of it. It's like you've taken one small segment and you've read it across the entire board. That just doesn't fly as real scientific theory. But that, that again, is theory rules all. Theory changes facts to fit theory. Theory has its own narrative and facts fit narrative and all the rest. That's how it's working. That's the education system. Look at the school boards. Look at the rest. Like, this is what the battle, this is our apologetic situation that we find ourselves in today. So when you think about um, other Christian families who might be interested in going down the adoption path, we don't want to have people walk away from this conversation and think like, oh, this is 100% what's going to be my story too. Mm -hmm. it, it, it might not be, and not all Christian adoption agencies are in this space, although we know that a significant number of them are. But Bill, what would you offer as some advice to families? Um, maybe, you know, how to respond if they come into the process and they run into these sort of terminology and, and 
critical theory ideas, like how might you advise them? Step one is you got to do your research on it. You have to be aware of the terms that they're going to use, the arguments that they're going to use. And that doesn't mean you have to read an endless number of books. There are a whole host of podcasts that are out there. You need to just be familiar with the things that are taking place. The second thing is, and if I could do anything different, is that I would ask way more questions in the very beginning. And I wouldn't just ask vague questions. I would ask very, very specific questions. Because again, you are not only adopting a child, but you're investing a significant amount of your time, your money, your effort, your emotions, your family's emotions into this. And if you don't know what you're getting into, and I cut all bit, like I knew this background, I knew this issue, but I didn't expect it. I sort of thought, eh, it's not going to happen here. I think we'll be fine with it. And the toll that it has taken in those different arenas, I did not count the cost on that. And I would tell you, ask the specific questions. You need to ask them things like this about the studies that we've gone through and some of the, the topics that we're talking about. And I almost wonder if there just needs to be something done in a broader sense where if you're watching this and you're an adoption agency that doesn't do this, you need to really, in many respects, make that known because there are people like my wife and I who would readily partner with you because one, we want to support a business like that and an adoption agency like that. And two, it helps people to avoid the ones that are actually doing that. And I also think that it's one of those where you need to look at the the funding sources on this and how are they getting their funding sources on this? Who are they partnering with? And what are they requiring? You need to do a lot of research beyond just what their webpage says. You need to ask specific questions. You need to ask questions from people, if you can, who have already adopted from the organization. And you need to ask them exactly what those trainings were like period. What did you go through? What did they require? Because I expect much like a first date where everybody puts on their, you know, they put their best foot forward and, you know, we realize, you know, we've got some ulterior motives or whatever it may be here. Um, every business, every organization, even 501c3s and stuff like that, they put their best foot forward. Ask the people that's participated. That's usually where you get the real stories from it. But what's interesting is is that when we started to make this stuff known, they, you know, we made it public, they started to respond and, and they had some people related to it. And I remember we made this and it like blew up something on the internet with it because there was a woman that wrote a book with Moody Press, basically arguing for critical adoption studies. Um, And they turned it into everything under the sun other than what it actually was. And the reality is, is that when you live in a postmodern society, authority and power structures are what rule the day. Like if there's no objective truth, you're right or you're wrong. It's the person who's got the right experience and happens to be the author writing about the quote, what we deemed right experience is the person who has authority on it. Go read those books, see how they're reacting to them. Realize it's a much broader cultural issue than I want a child it's turning to an issue of the apologetic situation of our day. And again, apologetics is not just something that's left out in the the world of conferences and speaking. Apologetics is a form of discipleship. And you need to take the time to deal with this because I'm not as fearful 
in today's day and age that if I had a child that they're going to go and convert to become a Muslim, as I'm more concerned about the fact that they're going to go through the school systems or just watch Instagram or Facebook and be converted to cultural Marxism and family members in that regard where you see these things. So that's why it's such an important issue to ask questions, get the answers, be the due diligent apologist to give a reason for the hope that you have. Be a good Berean and understand what the scriptures say on these matters and have the conviction to stand upon them. I want to finish on that little note with this quote. Norman Geisler, who was my mentor, used to give this phrase and he would say to me all the time, he'd say, Bill, there are two fears in life, fear of God and fear of man, and never let your fear of man trump your fear of God. So when it comes to this, you got to trust the grand providence of God, keep the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge before you and stand upon your convictions because that's where we're at today. This is the world that God has, you know, allowed us to serve in. This is our apologetic moment. Wow, that's that's a great reminder. I think um, for us, we are always wanting to call people to courage and in doing that and remembering that apologetics is discipleship. How are we, you know, discipling the people who are closest to us and rearing them and encouraging them to courage and to remain courageous, even in conversations that are going to be difficult. And this conversation on adoption is very, very difficult. It's a very personal conversation. It brings people's personal lives together. Something that, um, you know, for many families is, is very private. They, they aren't trying to, you know, have all of these conversations and then to potentially be brought into an arena where now in their, in the middle of their private conversation, they're also being offered this shame or you haven't done life right, but you're 35 and you haven't done life right yet. Or did you realize that you were a racist or that you really won't be qualified to care for this child? And so it is going to take a lot of courageous conversations in this space to be able to make sure that as believers and and within Christian organizations, we are maintaining the scriptures first and not the social theories first. Exactly. Thank you so much, Bill, for being here. Um, I want to let people know one more time about your channel. Tell us about the kind of topics that you cover there. We try to deal with the issues related to philosophy and apologetics, because one of the things that I have found is that this is the, the world that we live in, you know, we are dealing with this particular topic related to critical theory. But what I want to do is I want to train people through our channel to be able to think for themselves in the society in which we live. That's the the discipleship mandate that God has given us. This is the, the world in which we live. And that takes a whole variety of conversations because we live in a, a broader dialogue within evangelicalism on a wide variety of topics. So that's what I want to do. So sometimes we try to stay up to date. Sometimes we do long studies on the history of philosophy or apologetics or any issue related to that. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Everybody go and check out Bill's YouTube channel. Follow him on Twitter. He makes good tweets. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. This has been a good conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and the ability to address this important topic. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Wow. That was a lot. I mean, Bill was the the right man for the job yes. on, on this conversation because he had a good blend of the academic background with the personal, personal experience. experience. Yeah. And it just reminds me of that very sweet um, mom who came up to us in one of our the tour stops mm-hmm. on the reality tour 
and talking about how she receives special messages just for white parents through her adoption agency. Yeah, that was very, very um to train her on the daily, mm-hmm. like how to parent her her son. Yeah. And um it's it definitely creates a cloud, I would imagine, over the parents' head of am I ever gonna be enough? A lot of self doubt when we talk to parents who are in that space. They don't know if they're really up to the challenge of raising their child. They don't want to traumatize them. They don't want to traumatize them. I I definitely hear that. I think at the crux of it, although it misses the the biblical conversation on what it means to be a a human person and how how we as human people share some of the most fundamental um, aspects of one another. So like, there's a common humanity. Th- there is a common humanity. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to love? What is it? Where, yeah. What do some of these things mean? What does it mean to raise my child godly, to raise my child in the faith? Because at the end of the day, my skin color isn't more important than my identity in Christ. When, when we think about adoption and building a family, I do think it's important for us to think about God the Father and adoption and how in Ephesians 2 it's not saying that you know God only brought in you know some of the people into his family or it was to his good pleasure to bring in the white people into his family no but it was to his good pleasure to bring us all into his family yeah and from every nation tribe into yes and so how do we do that well as Christians we don't do that by putting skin color first we do that by putting the human person first so understanding what that means now we can have the cultural conversation I'm up for that. There are things that are beautiful about culture, but then there's things that are, you know, not great, deeply flawed and wicked in culture. But we also must remember that not every skin color matches a specific culture. And so there's just a lot more conversation that should be had than the you're this color. You don't match this kid. And for those reasons, you're out. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, such a it's the wrong categories. It's the like Bill said, it's the wrong solution. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a good conversation. Uh, hopefully our families are going to find this helpful. And it's, it is a very personal issue, you know, and in, in talking about your family, but letting God speak into that, letting God guide you in the process. And it is important, but not getting sucked down the critical consciousness vortex is important either is is important too i also thought he brought out a a very helpful point and something that i think definitely deserves more conversation is the intersection of disability theory with adoption theory with critical race theory um because that is something that is blooming like when we went to um ets the evangelical theological society's you know conference both in 22 and 23 yeah these are all evangelicals, all Christians, and they are promoting disability theory at crazy levels. Yeah. So so it's so it it's here. It's yeah. it's right here in our neck of the woods. We should be talking about it. Yeah. Well, we look forward to hearing from you. Send us your feedback about the show and and your thoughts and what you found helpful. We always also appreciate your ideas for the show. You can always email us on, on the email that's at the crawl on the screen. Make sure you download the CFBU app. That's the best way to stay in touch with all of our podcasts. In fact, we should take a minute to say off code. 
now has its own YouTube channel. Yay! So if you love the Off Code podcast, it's going to start being uploaded on the new channel. So go look for Off Code. Make sure you're subscribed. Hit the notification bell. And you can hear all of Kevin and Monique's antics and conversations about yes. the Black community. Go check it out. All right, friends. We will see you next week. God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. Oh,